Hi, I'm Niall O'Carroll, and this is Inertia Creeps. Hey, Zena, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm living the dream. Lovely to join you in your sitting room for uh, for a chat this this afternoon. Ignore the junk. Pretend the junk isn't surrounded. <laughs> I'm going to reupholster these chairs and this sofa at one at some point. I have been saying that for four months, and they just sit there. How's uh, how's life treating you in sunny Portsmouth? Uh, it's always sunny in Portsmouth. It's cold and crisp today, one of those perfect autumn days, and life is really good. The charity is going fantastically, and it's still my honour and privilege to to work for Delalio Rugby Works, which is awesome. Um, and the few days that I get to do some other things are also going really well. Um, your mention of uh, Delalio Rugby Works, why not go? Why not start with a nice plug for the the charity and? Tell me a little bit about the charity, what it's at, and and where you guys are, uh, what are you building towards in 2024? I mean, it's a fantastic charity. We work with young people who've been excluded from school, um, and we work across England and in Wales at the moment. We have aspirations to cross the pond and come to you, um, but I don't think that'll be in 2024. Uh, I think that's going to be a few years out. Uh, but what we do is we work with young people in the places they get put when they've been excluded from mainstream school, secondary school age we work with. And so if you're thrown out of your secondary school, you end up in something called a pupil referral unit or alternative provision. Um, And we work with you there for up to four hours a week. Um, And we use rugby as a hook. And why rugby is so brilliant for for all the sports fans out there. Um, Rugby is an amazing team sport to get young people engaged, partly because particularly in secondary schools in England, but funnily enough, now increasingly in Wales, young people aren't that exposed to rugby. By the time you're 11, you know what position you play in football and you know whether you're any good. You don't in rugby. So it's kind of a neutral territory. Kids don't come in thinking they can't do it. So they're not coming in on the back foot. But also it's probably the most inclusive team sport. Actually, no matter what body size you are or what your body shape is, there's a role specifically designed for you. And that really helps us in engaging girls because it completely alters what the body image is about. Because, you know, some of those bigger body sizes are ideally suited for rugby, whereas in other sports they look down on. They're actively sought after. So that's that's an amazingly inclusive sport. But we use that as our hook to engage young people. And then we run a skills programme. So we're teaching young people employability skills, life skills. and alongside that, give loads of opportunities to meet employers and find out what you might want to do as a job. Because particularly for young people living in poverty, which is who we work with. I mean, we dress it up with words like deprived communities or whatever. It's, it's just living in poverty. And they don't often have very many access to employers and employer um, don't know what jobs are out there. Um, particularly often you're coming from two or three, sometimes four generations of unemployment. So we work a lot with employers to give these young people opportunities to see what might suit them. Um, and whilst we don't work on getting you GCSEs, we leave that to the education system uh, to get you your hires, your GCSEs, whatever exam system you have. We really help you identify why the skills you've got are useful in the workplace. So if you're having to get up because your mum's ill and you're having to get up and get your siblings to school, actually that shows leadership, teamwork, organisation, clear clarity of thought. So all of those, we say those are actually skills you've got and this is how employers might want them. And then we help you on an app actually record those skills so that you've got then a digital way of showing employers what you've got by producing a skills map. So that's kind of what we do when we are staff for a mixture of coaches, sports coaches and youth workers. 
And it's fantastic. Well, it is fantastic. It's it's something to be to be very proud to be involved with, and it's it's also interesting because I would have done a lot of work in my career with athletes retiring and helping them to figure out how to transition out of sports and understanding the skills that they developed during their career are transferable to the corporate world. And what I think is really interesting now, and you've had a really interesting career. I know my career has been less than linear <laughs> in the directions I've taken, but you you similarly have had a really fascinating career. And I think you mentioned something there that I think is really important, which is about employers thinking about skills and the traditional way we do recruitment is all about you know your your experience it's what have you done and what degree did you do and and what what you know what what department did you work in and if you worked in hr you you know that's your experience you stay in hr and if you worked in sales you stay in sales and actually it's far more important i feel and particularly in the modern kind of in employment area because of remote working and all that, the people are starting to realize their skill sets are very, very transferable and, and, and flexibility is probably more important than tradition and experience. Um, but what's your thoughts on that? Like from, from the point of view of working with these kids and working with employers to get them to understand the trend, you know, the, the, the skills they have, but also what's the, 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 the future of work looking like from your perspective for somebody who has a phenomenal career behind you and we'll talk about that in a minute but the the skills you've developed over your life and and what you think that means for the next generation of kids coming out of school going into workplace and actually what it means for employers when they're hiring these people well it's really interesting because we try and link the skills side of what we do with young people to things like what the world economic forum say about the skills that are needed for um you know 25 and beyond and there is such a focus and the number one thing apparently we all need to keep working, you know, into the 20s and 30s. Uh, the one, number one thing we all need is adaptability um, and flexibility and that ability to change and shift and, and to not be threatened by what is constant change. And that's apparently the number one thing um, that we all need. Well, anyone who's ever played a team sport knows you've got to be amazingly adaptable because you've gone out there with your play, haven't you? And it never, it never goes that way. I mean, you practice your drills, there are things that you know, there are things you're planning to do. So actually, I think sport has an awful lot. And that's why we use sport with our work with young people to actually help you that ability to think on your feet and respond to what's in front of you, not what you expected, which might be a massive, great prop. And if you're looking at rugby or, in, you know, in tennis, it might be a ball coming from a completely different angle. Um, and in life, it's a sudden change of strategy that you weren't expecting. I mean, the idea that employers now write a 10 year business plan is such nonsense. I mean, it's it's beyond stupid um, because we, we need to have a sense of that endpoint. And, and as employers and, you know, I, I would still do a little bit of work in the commercial sector and it's just as true there. But let me tell you, it's absolutely true in the charity sector. that you've got an endpoint. You've, you've got you've got, you know, the destination, which is to change young people's lives, to include the excluded, to help young people be. Uh, you know, work ready. That's our, our mission. And, and particularly for us, there are these things called pupil referral units, PRUs, which is where you get when you've been thrown at go, when you've been thrown at secondary school. And there is a direct pipeline from PRU to prison. It's very well evidenced. And our mission is to break that cycle and change that destiny. So we kind of know where we're going. But actually, with each challenge, there's a, you know, what I thought was going to be the way we were going to do it. No, not anymore. And you've got to be adaptive, you've got to be flexible, you've got to be able to see and seize an opportunity. 
So the work we do with young people is very much about those skills. And then it's about the skills of being creative. So, okay, the world's changed. How are you creatively going to solutionize this? Terrible word, isn't it? Solutionize. I don't even think it's a word. <laughs> but what are you going to do to, to, to be creative? How are you going to think your way out of this one? So it's sort of those creativity. And I think the next big skill that um, certainly the World Economic Forum says we're all going to need is leadership. And so what we focus on with these young people is not, you know, not how to lead Credit Suite, but it, it's how do you lead yourself? How do you become your own leader? So that self-leadership is, is the number one. And it's about understanding. So st you start with self-control. So 80 percent of young people get thrown out of, of secondary schools across England, Wales, Ireland, actually, Scotland. 80 percent of them get thrown out because at some point, somehow they've lost control. And that might have been violent or it might be completely withdrawn, but they've lost control. So that whole self-control piece is our first platform in self-leadership. But you think about that in the workplace. Um, it's equally as relevant and that you start with self-leadership and then you learn about how to lead other people, lead situations, lead projects. And so we develop skills along those lines in the charity. But I think that's equally relevant to people coming out into the workforce. So now, you know, I'm, I'm looking at people in all the roles that I have that are about employment. And yeah, it's great that you've got some great GCSEs. It's great you've got some great A-levels or highers or whatever your exam certificate is. It's great that you went and read history at a really prestigious university. Actually, what, what are you going to be able to do for me? And, um, and I've got, I'm really lucky in Delalio Rugby work, 60% of our workforce are 25 or under. So I work with really young people, a lot of young people who've had the same lived experience as our young people. A lot of young people have come through our programme. Um, and when they're employing, I say, what's the number one thing you're looking for? And, and they all talk about my number one thing is common sense, which is which is a skill most people seem to, to lack, is that, you know, and, and that goes to, to a whole range of things as well, is, um, you know, and then that that initiative, I think, is another massive one, being able to take initiative, not always needing direction. And I wonder if with a very linear education system that we have globally now, it's particularly prevalent in the UK. Ireland, I know, offers something different with this sort of year between 16 and 17. Uh, which I think is incredibly valuable. We don't have that. Um, it's very much a spoon-fed system. It doesn't encourage initiative. It doesn't encourage teamwork. It doesn't encourage problem solving. It's very much, here's what you need to absorb, go and absorb it. So I think there's a lot we need to do educationally. And as employers, I think we'd be really valuable actually testing young people on those things or future employees. Yeah, and some of the challenges, I think, that comes with that are like the a lot of kids, you know, behavior problems in school, a lot of the the challenges that come with that. Like, I mean, a lot of the kids who have behavior problems in school are having behavior problems in school because school is not set up for them. In particularly if you think of it like, you know, there's this and 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 I, I'll be banging a drum about this throughout the, this whole this whole season of the show, but this idea that like twenty percent of the population are neurodiverse and the other eighty percent are typical. Like in some way, there's a typical way to be is complete nonsense. But we don't think about diversity when we think about schooling and we don't think about like I discovered about six months ago, I've got ADHD. And this is obviously something that's fascinating and very relevant in my life to me. And I don't look at it from some sort of, you know, uh, you know, I'm not angry about it. I'm not kind of like poor me. I don't want the world to make allowances to suit me. But what I do is I understand now an awful lot more about why schooling wasn't for me. 
and I look at it with my kids and I look at it with, 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 with kids in general. And the more I look at it, the more I look at why sport is so important, because for a lot of kids, it gives them a direction and a sense of discipline and confidence that they don't get in the schooling system. In fact, school knocks the confidence out of you. And the idea that you're talking about initiative and leadership and skills and um, and all these things that are so important, um, it, 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 it really shape, it, it, I, for me, it's why schools never really talk about entrepreneurship and they never really talk about innovation when actually, you know, there's a reason why dyslexic people tend to make really strong entrepreneurs. And it's, it's kind of like the schooling system is still stuck in the industrial revolution age of, you know, generate drones to go to war or to go to factories. And society has changed and we've all changed. And as human beings, we're changing. And, and the generation that's coming out of school now are very different because they're not accepting kind of where we as a generation would go to work and do what we were told. And, you know, you kind of had to, to work your way up the ladder and take all the abuse and figure out how to get to wherever you want to go. Now kids are walking in the first day kind of going, well, I want to be CEO in five years. So tell me how to get there, you know, and what are you offering me kind of thing? Uh, what I think is really important, actually, and it's something I want to ask you, the, the, because you work for Delalio Rugby Works, and obviously Lawrence was uh, a phenomenal leader himself on the field um, and an integral part of the leadership team that won the World Cup with England in, in uh, 2003. Um, he, he was one of those guys who all the things you're talking about were, were, were apparent on the field. Um, but one of the things that I think is really interesting now, and it's something that I know from your career and the leadership style that you've always held and how your leadership style has been nuanced over the years, is there's a fascination nowadays with like companies spend lots of money on resilience. And there's all these conversations that we need to be resilient. And I and, and actually in, in uh, the, the, the first episode I did for this season was with a guy called Brezzi, who's a, a, a friend of mine and a, and a great guy and performer, professional rugby player. He's a professional musician. He's doing a PhD. He's, you know, he's annoyingly good at a lot of things. But he talked about this kind of um, this kind of fascination with we need to be resilient. And he's going, well, if you stop and think, we've just been through a, th a three year shutdown of a global pandemic. We've got wars going on. We've got a, a political system that is so split and divisive that we're, you know, we've got we've got a, a device in our hands that's given us negative information. I mean, all you have to do is go onto TikTok and you're seeing images from Gaza of what's, you know, from the Ga from the Palestinian perspective, what's going on in Gaza instead of what media is telling us from the Israeli perspective, and all these different things are going on. We are resilient because we're still here and we're upright and we're moving forward. But for me, it's kind of like, what is the, what is the message? Like, I mean, the, 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 the ideal for me, and, and, and obviously this is a very long rant, but like what Lawrence was brilliant at was overcoming failure, challenge, figuring out a solution. What you've been brilliant at your career is, and, and, and I was very fortunate to sit in a room and listen to you speak last year, where you spoke about your five biggest failures and how your five biggest failures made you the leader you are. And I thought it was brilliant because people generally go on stage and talk about how awesome they are. You, you spoke about how awesome you are by talking about how 
you fucked up in life. And that to me is so important. And I think the more kids get the understanding that actually making mistakes is okay. And it's part of the process. And, you know, you can't achieve anything without failure. Um, to me is, is the kind of message of life. So I suppose after all of that big long rant and you know me, I like to kind of articulate my point, you know, um, but talk to me a little bit about that, your philosophy around why your mistakes make you a better leader and how that translates into the messaging you're giving these kids, I suppose, going out into the work, out into the world. Um, I mean, I certainly, I certainly agree with you, by the way, about the education system and how completely off pace we are. <coughs> and I think that's where it's <coughs> interesting what the World Economic Forum is saying about adaptability, because that that is also that ability to recognise you've done something wrong, work out how you're going to try and put it right, if you possibly can, and moving on. And I think the the whole thing about mistakes is about moving on from them and not letting, not necessarily letting them define you that doesn't mean you're going to forget them um and i think when i i'm not particularly good at anything i haven't i've never been particularly good at sport i can't draw i don't act i can't play a musical instrument i miss when i clap you know i mean there's, there's nothing really that we're going to put out there that girl's great at that let's let's go get behind her um and so what's driven me on is, is you know, I've, I've got some really big motivators. So I am genuinely motivated by trying to do more good than harm every day. You know, it's a simple little motivation, but, but can I be a positive force rather than a negative force? Um, and that's why when you, when you make a mistake, you're like, oh, no, <laughs> really, no. And I've made some professional howlers um, and I've made some really small ones every day. Um, and I mean, I, I certainly... I certainly think, you know, that, God, I, I mean, pre-menopause, I was really quite bright. I now got all of these faults on top of being much slower. You know, I'm not half as smart as I used to be. And, and that's something that only women know about. We only know when we go through the menopause that we, we don't only start wetting ourselves, get fat, sweating. We start losing our mind and forgetting everything. So, you know, you're asking me my, for my five biggest mistakes that I talked about eight months ago. Well, I don't know. I can't remember that speech. No, I do. And I do remember my mistakes. Um, but I think that's that whole thing about continuing to move on with, with whatever set of cards you've been dealt. And, and certainly I talk when I talk, I talk about the mistakes that I've made, partly because I just think it's it's I, I don't think I've had enough successes to talk about. Um, I think that everybody, when you hear that you've, you've you've done something good, everybody goes, "Oh God, you know, will I ever be will I ever be that good?" Whereas actually, when you hear that, you know, you've you know made some some howlers. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's it's an employment howler where you, you've hired the wrong person, brilliant young dynamic leader who'd already made wealth and was going to take my IT business, which was a gaming company, looking at how you could use games this is years ago this is in the early noughties how you could use gaming technology to actually enhance the whole online shopping experience so developing uh, you know going to tesco's with your little trolley and putting the little things in and oh, doing all of that um as a different way of, of um uh, engaging because what i wanted to do was bring the social element into it what was a very at the time very one-dimensional experience that was very isolated into what shopping is, which, you know, now you look at what they're doing in Canada and other places where they have the tills that deliberately say, well, chat at this till. 
sort of thinking about how you could digitize that and how you could enable that through technology and uh, hired these two brilliant young games designers this fantastic ceo i, I was quite enjoying being the chairperson all, all up there big and it went horrendously wrong we'd skinned up this great shopping experience i was pitching to a very well-known supermarket probably not right to say which one and in the middle of it all there's, there's suddenly the floor disappears and tomato sauce comes hurtling at people's heads and i had to just stop it was hideous it was like it was horrendous anyway get back and, and work out that i had just failed to spot completely that the ceo's need for precision order you said you discovered you've got adhd fantastic man but i think he probably had ocd because he needed precision order he needed these guys to work between nine and five and these were gamers who stayed up all night i tried to think what they were doing in their beds and it was beyond the days of mucky mags they were looking i don't know i don't want to know but that's how they worked in this really chaotic way and yet we were there trying to put them into a regimented funnel and they hated the guy so much they deliberately sabotaged the pitch to get back at him obviously we didn't get the pitch we looked like idiots i had to sort of walk away so i'm an idiot cost me some relationships but it really gave me a good learning point that great people you actually need to think about how great people are going to get on because he was a great guy they were great guys but actually they weren't a great team and so that lesson really taught me it cost me money we, we, we managed to to close it all down without too much embarrassment and i actually gave those guys the the rights to the game and they developed murder in the mall that hideous american game they're now sitting there with loads of money loads of money. <laughs> i'm not sitting here with loads of money but you know it, it doesn't matter how badly wrong you get it you can learn from that something to take forward um and, and you know i could go through and i could talk through all five but we'll, we'll pepper this whole talk with with one zen a cock up after another if you like that could be number one <laughs> yeah let's yeah yeah it's, um there's something uh there's something very reassuring in talking about zen cock ups because it means i can avoid mine which uh i was just gonna say what that really taught me is about that whole creating a team and so even now today if you are going to be somebody's line manager you do the hiring you don't need me involved and you have the authority even if you're the most junior person in the team you have the authority to sign that off you have the authority to issue that contract to get going with that because it's actually those team dynamics that make the difference that make a team work it's not finding the perfect person it's finding the perfect people who work together to create that team and that was the lesson and i still take that with me and it's very rare. I mean, I will do it. I will hire somebody because they're just fantastic and I have to work with them. But, you know, my preferred style is they're your team, you pick. That's a, and actually, that's a really good tip. And, and I don't think too many companies follow that. You know, it's a, it's, 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 it, it is in, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. And it's kind of I can see it from a sports perspective where, you know, you put great people in a room together. But if they if there isn't that understanding of each other's needs it just doesn't work um and you'll see it all the time you'll see great coaches go to teams and fail and they see like joseph Mourinho got fired yesterday from roma and um it's kind of it's it's an interesting one because here's a guy who's had unbelievable success uh pretty much everything he touched turned to gold at the start and now it doesn't work and part of the reason it doesn't work is that even in his career the generation of footballers he's coaching are changing 
and the way he messaged at, at one time doesn't work anymore you know and obviously there's tons of reasons why something doesn't work but um it is really interesting and and i think um i think uh from a learning from our failures point of view i think it's really interesting that you really have like i think instead of us talking about resilience if we were to stop and think and talk about you know being open to learning from the things that go wrong so part of the problem is that we make mistakes uh i'm quite introspective and i would sit and dwell with my mistakes for quite some time and probably carry them around in a bag on my back for 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 years afterwards and um so i'd be very aware of the mistakes i make and that's great awareness is one aspect of it but then there's that you have to move on and you have to figure out what does it mean and the big challenge is the i suppose it's the courage to 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 interact with that mistake come out of it with a learning and then say how am i going to be different the next time and you're you know you've consistently done that i mean uh for people who don't know you who are listening i mean this is a lady who was the chair of ofsted who sat on the board of the royal navy and of her majesty's prisons and god only knows where else you've worked um like a woman who has kind of you know would would frequently dine with prime ministers <laughs> and now and 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 yet you're i i i think what i kind of love about talking to you and what i love about working with you and i've been very fortunate to do some bits and pieces with you over the years um but what i love about that is that your enthusiasm for where you are right now and your your ability to channel what hasn't worked in the past into something new and different is really really cool um and maybe is is there anything like you talk about the five mistakes and we can go through them one at a time and i don't necessarily want to kind of flag all the all the the dirty laundry says so to speak but is there anything about your learnings from the various things that you talk about that you think has really shaped who you are as a person because it's very easy to talk about who we are as leaders but really who we are as leaders is a is a, a reflection of who we are as as people um and you know sometimes it, it takes a bit of courage to be vulnerable enough to actually be who you are and sometimes we work with leaders the last thing in the world we want is for them to be authentic and genuine because the real person is an asshole but um but <laughs> talk to me a little bit about your career and 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 maybe like choose whatever one you want but just something that has shaped the way you are now and why you think you're particularly good at at navigating these things I mean it looked like for 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 an enormous number of years it looked like I was sort of almost on an upward trajectory <clears throat> everything was getting bigger and grander and you know more intense and and you know as you say I've I've worked for governments around the world I've I've just I mean you know bigger and grander and better um <clears throat> but within all of that everywhere I was however difficult it was you know <clears throat> I enjoyed. Mm. Um and it's only more very recently. Um because what I'm doing now certainly isn't bigger and grander. <clears throat> you know I work, I work for a quite a small charity. I work with you know with um uh, a namesake who's a very big character, but it, it's quite a small charity. I uh, we're quite a small team. There's only 50 of us. 
And what we do is unbelievably impactful and amazing. And the young people that we work with are a constant source of inspiration to me. But it, it isn't certainly, you know, a lot of people throughout their careers go sort of up and up and up. And their last job is like the most famous, the biggest, the most best paid. That's certainly not the story of my existence and my life. Um, and one of the things that I think I would say to, to anybody is where you're at is where you're at. And the only choice you've got where you're at is whether you're going to love it or loathe it. You don't really have any other choice. And um, the, 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 there's a, a big thing at the moment, isn't there? And everybody's doing it. You're, you're visualizing where you want to be. You're manifesting your, your future plans. And yeah, yeah, feel free to do that. I'm not knocking it. And I'm sure for some people, it helps them move on and aspire and, and grow and get to where they want to be. But actually, you're missing where you're at. And, and I have always lived where I'm at. And that means that I have had, I'm not saying bad things haven't happened to me. I'm not saying I haven't done things that have really screwed myself up and, and we'll, we'll come to some of those. And I'm not saying that external things completely beyond my control haven't gone, you know, have gone badly. Of course, I've had death in my life. Of course, I've had, you know, other people's illness in my life. You know, of course I have. I haven't left a completely charmed life, but damn close to a completely charmed life. And I think the only thing that I've had that has helped me do that is right now, today, I love life. Right. And that doesn't matter what I'm doing. And that doesn't. And I don't think about what I might do tomorrow. Because I, I'm here now and what I'm doing now is fantastic. Um, and, you know, the people around. I love my job. Right. I mean, I really. And it's such an honor and a privilege. And, and people sort of say, you know, say, well, you know, you used to be chair of Ofsted, you know, and there's that sense that you used to be someone. I've always been me and I've always loved it. And, and I think if I could give young people a gift or I could give an employee a gift or anybody, it's where you're at is where you're at. And don't spend quite so much time worrying about what great things might happen tomorrow because you might miss the great thing that's happening right now. And, and, and probably that's my my biggest lesson is try and enjoy today. Find one thing out of the miserable shithole you might be living in that you can actually enjoy, you know, whether it's a cup of tea or whether it's something bigger than that, because it, it, it's actually what you've got, because there might not be a tomorrow being blunt. And actually, do you know, there's an element of that, too. I mean, I, I, I love that. I completely agree with you. But there's also, you know, when you have these ambitions for where you want to get to and these these grandiose goals and this kind of like, you know, and there's nothing wrong with having long term targets and stuff to work towards. But it's very hard or it's very rare, I found, with people who can honestly actually reflect on, well, where are you at in the sense of you can only start from where you're at. And an awful lot of people try to kind of like, you know, I, I, I always give the example of uh, a golfer I worked with who wanted his lifetime ambition was to win the Masters. And my kind of, and I was kind of going, that's great, like, because it's my favorite tournament. So, you know, hopefully I'll be working with you when you do. And it'd be great. It'd be a great trip. But, um, but the reality was that the Masters is the hardest of the four majors to win because it's the only one that isn't, uh, uh, doesn't have an open element to it, a qualification element to it. So it's all invitational. 
So in order to get it, be guaranteed an invite, you have to be in the top 50 in the world um, or you have to be in the top you know, five on the Asian tour or whatever the case may be, right? So in order to be in the top 50 in the world, you kind of needed to be playing a fair bit of golf in America because that's where all the points were at that time uh, for the rankings, to get to get up the rankings. So in order to be successful in America, you needed to be, you know, every aspect of your game needed to be really solid. And it was kind of like tracking it all back to, well, where are we right now? And where's your game right now? And the guy, the guy was a very, very talented golfer. But it became a conversation then about, you know, well, what one thing can we do today to take you a step closer to winning the Masters? And it ended up being that putting was a concern. So we ended up spending like the next three or four weeks on the putting greens, doing all sorts of work on, on his putting before he went on to this, you know, the next step and the next step and the next step. And um, and he's actually played in the Masters in the last couple of years, which is very exciting, you know. So he's he's taken the steps he's needed to do to get to the level he needs to get to. Now winning it is the next step, and that's you know. Bloody and, and did he get you a ticket? Ah, uh, no. Funnily enough, the CAD. <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad you said that. Actually, that's reminding me. I'll be giving him a shout. But the idea was that, like, for me, is. You absolutely have to live in the moment and appreciate where you are right now. But you also need to be realistic. And like somebody, somebody, you know, could be sitting in conversation with you and saying, I want to be this the CEO of Delalio Rugby Works. And, you know, you're kind of going, well, where, where, where are you right now that it's going to get you to that path? Because, you know... You can't just manifest something all the time and this is going to happen unless you're honest enough to kind of realize that, you know, there might be skill sets missing that, that you need in order to be an effective CEO or whatever the case may be. So um, with that in mind, and purely from a voyeuristic point of view, let's have a chat about uh, some, of, some of these. Uh, I, I, I actually am. I'm curious. What would you say? And, and um, what would you say was the the single biggest, for want of a better term, fuck up in your life that actually kind of has shaped what happened afterwards? I think there's probably two because it shaped different things. So so one is um, a professional fuck up of magnitudinal proportions that still carries with me and makes me think every day. And the other was a personal fuck up that prohibited me doing other things because I'd screwed up. So maybe we'll do both of those if that's... I'm, I'm at your service. In terms of the, the sort of biggest professional cock-up um, of my entire life, which, which, which is beyond a cock-up, it's so bad, um, I was chairman of the health service in Portsmouth. At the time, there were we reorganised health in England on a, such a frequent basis, it's impossible to keep up. But at the time, there were things called primary care trusts, and I... I was ultimately in charge of the one for Portsmouth that looked after all of the health money for the citizens of, of Portsmouth. Um, so whether that was whether you were going into hospital or you were having a GP, we looked after the money and we directly ran some services. So we directly contracted with the GPs and we directly ran, um, we were beginning to take over directly running from what had been a community trust, some community services. So we ran health visitors and midwives and things like that. But we also had started to take over mental health services. And in terms of building the primary care trust, we'd had several, I'd sort of put in place several planks 
of how we were going to lead and manage uh, the local NHS. And, and one of which was goes back actually to, to that experience that I told you about running that small IT business, that technology company, was that actually the people who understood the people were the people who should be leading and managing the people. So actually clinicians should be led and managed by clinicians, not by managers. So we had a clinical subcommittee that actually looked after and managed our decision making around clinical decisions. Um, and then, you know, that, that just gives one example. But I put a lot into this culture that I really wanted to be an empowering culture that was autonomous, that allowed people to make decisions, be held accountable for them and move on. And we were doing really well. And as a PCT, um, we'd, we'd really embedded this culture and we were actually managing our money a lot better than a lot of other primary care trusts in the country. We were opening more new services. Uh, our public health was going really well. Our partnerships with local authority. You know, there was a hell of a lot to be proud of in, in that mix. Um, and we took on running these uh, mental health services. And we took on acute and we took on some long term adult mental health services. Um, and the first bit we took on was acute. And I sort of went onto the wards and met people and was horrified to see that patients were using rolled up blankets as pillows. And I was like, well, I just went out and bought fire retardant pillows. And I said on the ward, I said, why? And they said, we've been eight, waiting 18 months to have our pillow um, invoice request approved. So like, that's going to change. You have the power. You make the decisions. You know what's best for patients on these wards. You, you will have access to spending and we will hold you to account. So, you know, we're going to check what you spend, but we're not going to hold you up in spending it. And put in all of this and done all of this. And then we took on another few wards. And I didn't do ward rounds with the staff when I first started. I presume that somehow by osmosis, this culture would infuse to what we took on as new. And it didn't. The old culture was very much there, which was which a culture that was sort of based on a, a feeling of disempowerment, of uh, feeling isolated from the top of the shop, of not of scrimp and save that was was the culture um and one young man there um his initials are gh um uh had a very very serious outburst couldn't control his emotions his mental health was in full-blown psychosis and he was restrained by staff using a duvet which is completely unacceptable restraint procedure he needed to be restrained that's not the question mark but it was completely unacceptable restraint procedure and during the restraint he died and that in itself is utterly tragic and the coroner went on to find that the method of restraint has had no bearing on his his death um, and the fact that he was restrained had no bearing on his death so there was no legal accountability there however the attitude afterwards staff were heard to be saying oh jesus this will be another inquiry Another staff member lit up a cigarette and had a cigarette. Um, you know, there, there was this 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 sense of, well, what's the impact for us on this? Um, and the initial inquiry was the most defensive I had ever come across. And it was only at that point that I got involved at all. And our internal inquiry had not even offered an apology to his family. 
And that was because the culture, his, historic culture had been one of blame. And actually we learned so much from that as a trust and personally, it still haunts me um, that that happened and the attitude of the staff and it still haunts me that I thought culture was just something that would, would pass on by osmosis. And my lesson from that and in every organisation that I work in is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, and I nicked that phrase from a very wise man I met in the NHS, a guy called Paul Corrigan. And it absolutely does. And the second thing I learned that, that culture is the one thing you work out every day in every way. And so if your culture as it is in Delalio Rugby Works is that we work with high energy, we are future focused, we tell it like it is, and we play as a team. If I'm not reminding people of that every day, that's not how our organisation will be. And if we don't recruit in that mould, that's not how our organisation will be. And so for me, the biggest thing that stays with me and the thing that I still feel most ashamed about every day is GH in that mental health hospital. Every day, I still feel dreadful. Because I could have prevented that by talking to those staff and by getting my staff to talk to those staff about the culture and the way we do things around here from day one. And I didn't. I got complacent. I thought somebody else would do it. And so it taught me a lot that the fact that if you're at the top of the shop, it's always your problem, whether it's a lost bloody paperclip, you own it, it's yours, you failed. And it taught me that, and it taught me that culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. And if you don't work at your culture every day, you don't get a great culture. And I hope that the people, the one thing that the people who work, for an example, for Delaney Rugby Works today, will tell you is that they love the culture, they love working there, they understand why high energy is important when you're working with young people who who are often in very, very acute, vile life circumstances. They don't need you to turn up like a wet weekend. So that's that's probably my biggest all-time fuck up. And I can tell you something now, when you look at Ofsted, the culture that was around, no matter how broken and flawed Ofsted was when I was there and how many mistakes we made, and God did we make mistakes, most of which were my fault, there was two things. There was one without fear or favour, which I think still exists within Ofsted. But the other watchword was do good as you go. And you absolutely have not seen that in Ofsted in the last five years, six years, maybe more. Um, so that's my, my, my biggest professional. Do you want to end on my biggest personal? Yes, let's. <laughs> we'll end on that because it's really yeah. had a career devastation for me. Okay. So we'll end on that. So let's do something in between before we come to the end, because I, I see we've only got a little minutes left. Do you know what? I'm kind of in massive voyeur mode now, so I just want to get to the personal. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, um, like I, I love the openness you have. And I suppose as we lead into the personal one, just that kind of thing about like that, uh, that story of, of, you know, uh, such a profound impact on you. That has an impact on you personally too, right? If you're thinking about it every day since, um, you, you know, it, it, you, you can't be human and something like that doesn't have some impact on you. So maybe talk, like, it, is there something about the way you um, manage yourself personally? I know you have this fabulous personality that kind of you tend to see the the joy in every day kind of thing, but how do you kind of channel channel that when you're in the mind of you know my failure led to somebody 
you know, losing their life, which is awful, you know. Um, and maybe tell us your personal story, but with that in mind about like, how do you look after yourself, I suppose, as a takeaway? I think emotions like guilt and regret, those emotions don't help anybody. They don't help you, but they certainly don't help the person that you're feeling guilty about or the situation that they regret, you regret. You, they don't change anything. So I suppose I spend a lot of time fighting those emotions. I don't need them in my life. So when you've made a catastrophic cock up, you apologize. Um, and you then try and think about reparation. So in the case of Jeffrey, the reparation wasn't to the family. There was nothing I could do there, but I could not only in the NHS, but for the rest of my life, I could try and make sure that I always had a focus on culture that would stop those sorts of things happening. So I suppose I'm very much the sort of practical what to do about it rather than the, the dwell in it. I mean, it doesn't stop those, those thoughts of self-loathing creeping in, but you're like, well, what's the point of that? That's not actually serving, doesn't serve me well, because I don't, I don't do more harm than good in the world if I'm getting out of bed going, you're a loathsome creature. It doesn't help. Um, and so I suppose for me, there's sort of that being able to get up and get on is because I genuinely try and get up and get on and do a better job. Um, I try. Of course, everybody's the, you know, we're all the heroes of our own story, aren't we? And we, we all should be the centre of our own narrative. But I actually find myself unspeakably boring. I mean, Christ alive, am I tedious. Um, so where I get my strength is from other people um, and I find other people endlessly fascinating. I am massively curious. Other people just say I'm deeply bloody nosy, but I'm massively curious and I am much, much more interested in their story than mine. And therefore, you can distract yourself from yourself if you're feeling a bit shitty about yourself by talking about somebody else. Um, so I suppose I use those things to, to get back up. And, and get on with it. Um, and I know how easy it is to dwell in, you know, feeling crap about yourself and how easy it is to feel hideously guilty and put on a hair shirt. But actually, that doesn't help anyone else. And in fact, it often if you've done it, you know, you, you, you haven't actually done something quite as terrible as me, but you've done something, you know, you've slighted a friend, you've been mean to them at a party because you're a bit pissed or you're mean to them at a party because you were just a bit damn grumpy or whatever it was. Actually putting on the shirt, the, your, your hair shirt and, oh, you know, God, I hate myself. I'm so vile. Doesn't actually help them. It just makes them feel bad because you were nasty. Do you know? And it's about saying, no, look, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean it in that context. I, you know, the context came out. Um, you know, let, let's put it behind us. Because if you say, oh, I'm still so sorry. I'm still such a shit person. They end up going, no, it doesn't matter. And of course it matters. You made them feel crap. Let them be angry. They have every right to be pissed off with you and, and let them own that and, and let's all move on. So I think there's um, I think for me, it's about thinking about the other person, the, the, the person that you've wronged or the bad thing that you've done or the consequences that it's had for other people. And focusing on making that a bit better rather than thinking about how to make yourself feel better. Um, and not dwelling on yourself. So I guess that's how I've, I've got through. Um, and I am genuinely lucky that I don't wake up hating myself. I wake up most days going, oh, it's another day. Hello. Um, well, I wake up most days going, God, is that really the alarm? Can I have some more hours sleep? 
Do you know what? Last night I went to bed at nine o'clock and I didn't wake up not for a pee, not to me and the dog lay on that bed fast asleep from nine o'clock until eight o'clock in the morning. No, seven, I lie. I gave myself an, an extra hour there. We lay there solidly for 10 hours. What a, what a wonderful image to wrap up our chat on. Um, you are, you are a, a, a sensational human being and it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Um, oh, you missed my biggest thanks. personal failure. Do you want to throw that in at I the did. end? I did. I did. Sorry, I was so enamored by the story about the dog. Uh, go for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, do feel free to edit it out. But my, no, you asked me what my biggest, biggest personal failure was. And my biggest personal failure is one New Year's Eve. I'm out. Now, New Year's Eve is not sober night for most people. It certainly wasn't for me. And I'm there with my mate Sue and her husband, Ian. And... Sue really wants to come to a party with me and Ian really wants to go home to bed. Now, in fairness to Ian, he's got Parkinson's, so you can probably understand why he wants to go home to bed. It's, it's only in the early stages. It's reasonable. <laughs> I, I'm doing everything I can to persuade Ian to come out to a party. So I say to Ian, if you come to the party, I'll give you a blowjob. <laughs> now, honestly, I mean, most men I know, even if they only thought it was a joke blowjob and was not really going to happen, they're going to take the opportunity of a BJ. But not Arian. Arian says, no thanks, I'd rather watch Jules Holland. Wow. <laughs> Which to me was the funniest line I'd ever heard in my life. Yeah. Um, and my friend Sue and I put it on social media, on a private chat on social media on Facebook. But we put up, Zena's just offered somebody a blow, a handsome man a blowjob. And he said, no, he'd rather watch Jules Holland. What is the world coming to? Friends thought it was hilarious. A very clever reporter from the Brighton Argos managed to get into my social media account. Don't know how. I have a feeling it was, um, I, I, I do know how, but Facebook inadvertently made me, me public, not private, I believe. That's one theory. The other theory is a very clever IT person was very cross with me and uh, hacked it and made it public. But the journalist from the Argos got hold of it and put it on the front page. It was his scoop story of the Brighton Argos, former chairman of Ofsted, involved in slutty sex scandal, offers a man a blowjob. It made every, the next day, it made every single national newspaper, not the front pages, uh, not national, because it went international, it went to Scotland too. I think it was only the Scotland Herald and the Guardian that didn't run the story of Ofsted and blowjobs um across the country and i was interviewed for other big public sector jobs and was barnstormingly good at interview and was categorically told i'm sorry it's your blowjob jokes that stop us giving you a job that is not how the public sector behave and so it has stopped me ever getting another public sector job and how long ago was that oh good i'd, I'd say we're coming up for 10 years nine years something like that mm. And isn't it funny, like the, uh, well, obviously the the scandalous nature of, of the mainstream media kind of, you know, puts a slant on something that has no relevance to reality, but the uh, the kind of faux morality of society, it's kind of, it's like, I, I find it fascinating when you've got all these like evangelical politicians. I mean, America is famous for them. Um, this kind of uh, Bible bashing you know, the good of the family kind of stuff. And then it turns out that they're involved in some, you know, gay sex scandal or something, you know, and 
it's it's why why do we feel the need to have a morale a moral kind of um viewpoint of everything why can't we just it's more than that for women i think it's more than that for women i think i mean this was i hadn't actually done anything wrong i had made a bad ill taste joke and if if you find the word blowjob offensive i'm very sorry but i've made an ill faced ill-advised joke that should probably never have been put on social media um and but however it was a joke about a blowjob it wasn't anything more than that and I think that you still see the standards between men and women really play out in that public debate. I have little doubt that it certainly wouldn't have caused quite the stir that it caused if I'd been a man. Um, you know, if I'd made a joke about a blowjob as a man, I don't think it probably Well, when would've... you consider the statement that came out about Donald Trump before the, the, the presidential election, it's... Uh... You, know, it, it, you know, him wanting to pussy grab and actually doing it, is less of a sensation than a woman making a job, joke about BJ. And I, I think that, I think some of it is about those double standards. I think some of it is about that real sense of, let, let's see if we can, some of it's about what's in the public interest. Some of it's about, because people were genuinely shocked and horrified that you would make a joke about a BJ. And that's the bit that stuck with me is where where is this line between, you know, humour and morality? Because actually, I don't think it's immoral to make a joke about that. I think probably standing in Leicester Square doing it in public, you've got some morality issues. Making a joke? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I think yeah. that there's a big debate there about how we perceive women in leadership as well. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting um, place to sign off, actually. And maybe we'll uh, we'll revisit this in another chat. Because I think the whole conversation about women in leadership is, is it's, well, I mean, obviously it's changing, but it's changing far slower than society is changing, I think. so. But the one thing I can tell you from that is that young people that I work with, when I show them the headlines and say, this is what can happen if you're not guarded on social media, they mm. take note. In a way that they wouldn't if you didn't have the story. Yeah, it's a great lesson, actually. Great. Uh, yeah, love it. Zena, you're an absolute superstar. Love it as always. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. And uh, we'll definitely be coming back for round two. Always a pleasure.